Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections to the upcoming event, Salt iConnections in Asia, taking place on November 11th through the 13th at Marina Bay Sands, Singapore. Salt Eye Connections Asia is the largest capital introductions event in the Asia-Pacific region, bringing together 1,500 leading asset allocators and alternative asset managers from around the world. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Will M&A pick up in 2024? Will this year mark the return of IPOs? Listen to Strategic Alternatives, a podcast from RBC Capital Markets to get fresh insights on the trends and market forces impacting deal flow across sectors and find out how companies and investors are preparing for a potential surge in deal activity and what signals to watch for this year. Listen and subscribe to Strategic Alternatives, the RBC Capital Markets podcast today wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the On The Tape Podcast, Guy Adami, Danny Moses, Dan Nathan. Dan Nathan, how are you? I'm great. Danny I'm Moses, how are you? Oh my God. I like being with you guys for a couple weeks in a row. I'll be back up soon. So Where are you? You're I'm in good, the man. FLA right now. Is that correct? That's correct. Big On The Tape Podcast. We got Danny with us, obviously. And in a few minutes, we're going to talk to Stuart Sop, the CEO and co-founder of Current. We're going to drill down on some of this inflation data that I think, Dan, is still hot, but other people think it's cooling a bit. We'll see what Stu has to think. Well, about. it is interesting that this was the the Fed's preferred mm. inflation reading okay. today, guy. Yeah, I just yeah, yeah, we just wanted to do that a little bit. And, and interestingly enough, the headlines coming out of the PCE was that it confirms the notion that the Fed is going to have some runway to sure. cut rates later. But yields aren't moving a whole heck of a lot. Stock market liked it though, so yields not moving much. Stocks raging. Yes. Funny you should say that. Yeah. Indulge me as you typically do as at the beginning do. of every one of our shows. Yeah. Now I believe in our fourth year. Is that correct? Yes. Which is remarkable if you think about it. I read a lot of things this week. I don't just look at stock market stuff. I look at sports. I look at entertainment. I look at music. Yeah. And I saw this week, Danny Moses, that Queen, one of my top five bands of all time, by the way, is about to sell their catalog of music for $1.2 billion with a B. $1.2 billion with a B. And I say, getting back to my earlier point, good on you, Queen, because they're a tremendous band and they can do whoever purchases this catalog can do a lot with it in the advertising world. So good for them. Now it got me thinking. I'm a huge Queen fan, as you both probably know. Their second to last album had a great song on it. The name of the song was I Want It All. 
and I want it now. And if you think what's going on, and my phone just fell, if you think about what's going on in the world, people want it all. They want AI, they want GLP-1s, they want the stock market, the S&P, the NASDAQ, they want the Bitcoin, Dan. They want it all. By the way, point out that in 1991, Queen's final album was Innuendo. One of the great songs off that album was The Show Must Go On. The Show Must Go On. Regardless of what's happening around you, the show must go on. I bring that up because Freddie Mercury died shortly thereafter mm-hmm. in 19. 19- so he's singing about the show must go on, knowing that he was facing his own mortality. I find that to be poignant. But getting back to it, Dan, Nathan, I want it all and I want it effing now. And that's the stock market. Danny, that's interesting. Guy just mentioned all those risk assets that seem to be raging. And I know there's a whole host of goofy stuff that you want to talk about. And it seems like you can find one in each market. But it was also fascinating that last week on the Curb Your enthusiasm. I know you're a fan of Larry David's show. Richard Lewis was, and again, these are longtime friends. Richard Lewis is, I think, going back to the first season almost 20 years ago, and they're in a golf cart. Whenever I see any old guys in a golf cart, I think of Danny Moses, but they were literally talking about Richard Lewis changed his will, adding Larry David to it. And again, RIP Richard Lewis, uh, fabulous performer, fabulous entertainer, really fun part of that show, but interesting stuff talking about what you're saying with the Freddie Mercury there a little bit. I think it's interesting. I think sometimes Sometimes people can see, they embrace yeah, the fact that, you know what, the end might be near and they're coming to grips with things, Danny. And listen. So the end might be well, near. I don't know about me. I hope not. No, but, but but the broadening out of, oh, of all this go. and the animal spirits that we're seeing again in crypto and, and, and meme stocks and the likes. Danny, you're sitting down there in the FLA. You're seeing a bunch of this goofy stuff. The stock market's at all-time highs here. It seems how much it's going up at this point, is it's, it's just inching higher a little bit, but other things are not inching higher. They're gapping higher. You get that feeling again where this is like the tail. Each of these kind of rip up cycles has this feel to it. And it feels like we're nearing the end of it, whether it's temporary, whether it's a 2%, 5% sell off, or whether we are at or near the top. Every indicator has lined up, but those can go on for a long period of time. But when you start to see some of these new shit coins, which are popping up again, you're starting to see some of these heavily shorted names like Beyond Meat move higher on crappy numbers. And you start to see that stuff. You got to start to ask yourself the question are we close to some form of a top? and are people looking for any excuse to buy anything. By the way, Freddie Mercury's home just listed for sale, his Georgian estate for $38 million. I just wanted to mention that also happened to coincide. Guy, just another queen factoid in there. But when you look around the world, Nikkei hitting basically 1989 highs or through those highs again, the irony in Japan, Guy, and I know we're going to get into this, is that they're finally going to, I would call it raise rates, but end their negative rate policy, which will probably happen in April. The markets are cheering. And I do want to say for the people that think we're bearish all the time, and we've quoted Peter Bookvar, a good friend, over the years on just investing in Japan. And look at the two big banks in Japan, SMFG, MUFG, which obviously owns a piece of Morgan Stanley. Look at those two stocks. And when they end negative interest rate policy, those are the names that you can feel good about owning. And I think the Japanese banks are going to catch up to the Japanese market. So I know I drifted there a little bit, but my point is that people are busy chasing so many things. If you want to put your money in the market, this is not a time to go chase blindly things that are just happening, working in momentum. Do your work still because there's still opportunities, always opportunities. Sometimes you're looking for signs. We had a whole podcast about signs. signs we, yep. we talked about Tesla, the band. And I saw a sign this week, Dan, Nathan, maybe you want to discuss this or maybe you want to just breeze past it. But you've been doing CNBC's Fast Money for the better part of 15, one, five years. Is that an accurate assessment? Yes, sir. You've probably been doing TV a little longer than that, but ish. About that, 15. Yet something happened earlier this week 
that I've never seen happen before. Really? And Danny just got me thinking about it when he used the term shitcoin. Yeah. We were talking about just some of the, there was a, a biotech stock that was up 100% yes, it on was. some phase two data, which again- Phase it, one. Oh, phase one data. And so again, oftentimes with little biotech stocks that are pre-revenue, you'll see that sort of behavior, right? But it just seems like more and more, Danny, to the point that you were just making with a Beyond Meat, which is not a company that anyone's felt particularly bullish about their fundamentals and certainly not their products in a very long time, gapping up on a beaten raise, high short interest. Another one today is C3AI. We're seeing this stock up, I think at one point, 20 some percent off of a beaten raise that I just didn't think was like commensurate with that sort of move. Mm. But you know what? I go and look, there's 33% short interest of that float. And so we're talking about this and I said, we're at the stage of the rally. Okay, where it seems like every day we could pick a new pocket, a new risk asset that's going batshit. No. Yeah, that's what I said. And then you said that. And, that, and I felt really bad about saying I that. I, I really did because I didn't mean to swear and not like I say the word shit like 50 times in my right. normal life. And it is weird that you and I have mics in front of well, us for half the day, but that one hour of the day when we're on fast money, we can't say shit. And I bring it up yeah. not to be a wise person. Yes, you are. That's not, no, I'm not. I bring it up because. Sometimes you see signs that you, you get to a point where you reach your boiling point. And I'm not suggesting you did or I did. You're starting to see signs that people are just like, they're done with it. That to me is a good sign. And I'm seeing it now, Danny Moses. Maybe I'm out of my mind, but obviously Dan mentioned a lot of these individual names. And listen, I want it all. If you think about what's going on in all these AI stocks, Vidya does not go down. If you think about what's going on in these GLP-1 stocks, Eli Lilly does not go down clearly. But now you get into crypto. Now, everybody's a crypto expert, Danny, and I'm not asking you to play stock market with Bitcoin, but when you see the move in Bitcoin over the last couple of weeks, when it's gone effectively from, I want to say, 50,000-ish, it just reeks of the things that you started the show talking about, Danny Moses. Yeah, I wouldn't overthink it. I just think it's supply and demand. The advent of the ETFs, I think we're north of now $7 billion flowing in. I realize that's small potatoes compared to the $2.2 trillion crypto world I think that we're in. And Bitcoin certainly has gone through a trillion dollars here. And so you're seeing retail money and probably some institutional money just come in and make small allocations. And it's having a huge impact because the people that hadn't sold Bitcoin yet aren't selling. So I don't want to overread to that, but it is... To Dan's point and the point I made earlier in shitcoins, it is opening itself back up to this. What ETF is next? Here comes Ethereum. Let's get ahead of it. Let's all of a sudden this regulatory environment has opened up or the unregulated stuff is opened back up again. So I am seeing some of that. I want to clarify something that Dan mentioned about Beyond Meat. They did not guide on. I just want to make very clear. That's where the irony here is that not only they beat on revenues, they missed on earnings. They got it down. And it was a 40% short interest. It traded basically the entire float one day. I think it's 61 million float. It traded almost 50 million shares yesterday. The debt trades at 20 cents in the dollar. That converts where? $206. The stock is at 10 people. Hello. Anyway, billion two in debt and 200 million in cash and burning. So I'll We'll end with that stock. But point is that when you see stuff like that happen, and I called Benny Porter, and I use the phrase we used to use, rub the lotion on his skin, it gets the hose again, which is from Silence of the Lambs, which is put the lotion in the basket, which is the short basket, which these factor momentum things start occurring. What's in the basket? You can go on Bloomberg and look, heavily shorter names, and then these names run, and they're always the same names that kind of run. So I think as it becomes more predictable, that's when you're near the end. Like the behavioral finance aspect of this, we are there. We are in every single extreme. I am not calling the top here in this market, but I am calling a return to quality. And I mentioned before a couple of weeks ago, I did the analogy of a craps table. Don't be a pig here. 
Do not be a pig. Take your money and stick it on some other. Yeah. And I'll just say this. We spent so much time talking about the Magnificent Seven. You said SEAL Team Six. It's now like the Fab Four or something like that. So this is Thursday into the close. The S&P is up 30 basis points. It's up six and a half percent of the year. The NASDAQ 100 is up 60 basis points. It's up nearly seven percent of the year. And so I just want to read a couple headlines that I woke up to this morning. And I think they're really important because these are three stocks that were in the Fab Seven or whatever the hell they were, the Magnificent and seven heading into this year, okay? And they're all down on the year. So here's the first one. It's Apple, which is down today, and it's down 6.5% on the year. Apple is behind in AI, and investors are getting impatient. That's in the Wall Street Journal. Here's another one. Tesla is down, obviously, 20% on the year. Biden, this is New York Times, Biden calls Chinese electric vehicles a security threat. Now, I read this, and I said to myself, this could actually be positive for Tesla, but it's down on a day like today, okay? And then the other one is the Alphabet. Okay, which is down on the year. And this really has to do with the fact that they keep trying to launch these generative AI products. These were meant to be a company that's an AI first company, and they had some issues with this image generator product and a whole host of other things. But again, down on the year. So some of these really great stories of 2023 that help power a lot of the gains in the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ 100. And they're also huge contributors from an earnings standpoint, right, to the S&P 500. They're losing their way, or at least they're losing at least some of the things that have made these mega trends in the broad market. We really saved the market in 2023. So think about this, Danny. And, and, and again, you brought this up before we were recording, and Guy and I have been talking about this on Fast Money. The AI trade and the GLP-1 trade as it relates to Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk. And now it's working its way into like smaller cap biotechs. And that was one of the names earlier this week, guy, that we were talking about. They're the same trade. They're crowded trades. Investors felt very comfortable because these are trends that are going to be around for years, if not decades, right? But now you have to be exposed to them if you're running money. And that's the kind of the passive thing, but also people thinking that they could outperform on an active basis. So I guess to me, keep your eyes open for these trades that are coming on done. People were asking us, will you shut up about Tesla? No, we wouldn't because we felt pretty confident that there were fundamental headwinds and that has played out. So Danny, talk to us a little bit about that. We can look at all the freaky stuff that's going on, all the stuff that's going batshit crazy, but there is stuff right before your eyes in some of the biggest companies in the world and they are starting to work their way into other parts of these megatrends. You're right. I think we are down to the Beatles. You are down to the Fab Four. I think that's a really good point. And then any other excuse to find in these other companies that have some piece of this. I want to point out two things that obviously happened this week, and everyone wants every company to have, quote, an AI strategy, because that does remind me, obviously, of the dot-com, when people would just add dot-com to their name and so forth in the time period. But two things stuck out to me. Disney, so there's a small fund, I don't know how small it is, called Blackwells, and they basically took a $15 million position in Disney and went active. And basically, other than they want them to read their theme parks, said that Disney must produce an artificial intelligence strategy and share elements of that strategy with its shareholders. Okay, obviously Disney's at the forefront of media technology. They've been incorporating forms of technology forever. I'm sure they're gonna get there. My point is that they just want Disney to say it so the stock can go up and make a move. What's the other thing that happened? Weight Watchers, WW, I'll always call it Weight Watchers. Oprah Winfrey today steps down from the board and she's gonna donate her shares, which by the way, down to three bucks a share to charity. Okay, what happened? They bought a company called Sequence, Weight Watchers a year ago because they realized they needed to get into kind of this GLP-1 type drug because they were worried that their business would be at risk, which was the correct assumption. So they bought a telehealth company that basically writes prescription. 
I know that tonight the big shot is debuting on CNBC, a documentary by our friend Melissa Lee talks about this exact thing. So these are things that are happening. So as positive as it is, Dan, for some companies, an excuse to buy, you just pointed out, it's also an excuse to sell. And if Google's strategy is messed up and Tesla's strategy and AI is messed up and Apple's doesn't have a formula strategy, you're giving people an excuse to look to other places. And so again, I think what you'll have is overbought conditions and potentially ignored or oversold conditions on a name like a Google is going to get to a level potentially or an Apple, but you're going to hear that you can start to buy these stocks. So this is the theme. It's going to play out for all of 2024. We started almost a year ago. It'll be a year in May with the NVIDIA AI run-up. That's when that started. GLP started right around, Dan, correct me if I'm wrong, around the same time, time period. And those trends are going to continue megatrends as you call them. So it is interesting to watch. So I'd watch out for people getting overly enthused and overly bearish on both sides of the coin on those two products. We'll talk about Apple and Google in just one second. Danny Moses, listen to the question I'm about to ask Dan so you have time to prepare because I know you, you need time to prepare. Dan can do this off the top of his head. You're a fan of lacrosse, right? Yes. You grew up playing lacrosse yes. with a stick in your hand. Yep. Who would you deem to be the greatest lacrosse player of all, forget about Jim Brown. I get it. Jim Brown, yeah. Syracuse. Modern era. Modern era. So there's, it's basically the Michael Jordan versus the LeBron situation. Okay. Gary Gate. Gary Gate. Okay. And then there's obviously our main man, Paul Rabel. I'm friends with both of them. I love both those guys. And they both changed the game in two different periods. And they continue to change them doing different things in the current period. Game changers. Yes. People that when you think of the sport, you think of Gary Gate. Yes. You think of Paul Rabel. Yep. And Fair. I think of Paul Gate, by, by the way. Uh, Paul the Gate is brothers. Yeah, the Gate brothers. Just throw yep. them together. Yep. 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 Okay, Danny Moses, I'm going to play this game with you. You're a fan of the sports as well. Give me a sport and let's uh, – I'll give you football. On the defensive side of the football, who would you put – who is that person, first name that comes to mind? Lawrence Taylor, Lawrence the greatest. Lawrence Taylor, number 56, New York Giants. I believe he was the second picked in that draft. Changed the game. Is that fair to say? Fair enough. Changed the game. Changed Weisman's game. Think about it. But he changed. teams had to scheme yep. for him. The left tackle position, which used to be just big dopey guys, all of a sudden you needed a big athletic dude to stop an LT. Changed the game. Blindside. Lawrence yep. Taylor. We agree. Gates. The, the Gates. Rabels. LT, I'm a hockey guy. Obviously, everybody says Gordie Howe. Love Gordie Howe. Wayne Gretzky, 100%. The best hockey player of all time is Connor McDavid. Don't at me. I'm just telling you flat out. Connor McDavid's next level. So in our world of investing, okay, I just set this up, Dan. In our world of investing, if you think of the one person like he or she, yep. top of the shit pile, like you think of investing. Steve Cohen. You think of Warren Buffett. I set all this up and you gave me Steve Cohen. <laughs> no, wanna, wrong. Wanna, you want to do it again? No, I don't want to do it again. And Danny, I mentioned this because Warren Buffett, he is the man, right? We agree with this, right? No, but see, all right, hold on. I, I don't agree with that. I, okay, like, that's I, what like, makes I, a good podcast. But like, like it's just, it's goofy in a way. I know that you don't actually really no, I don't. think that. I don't think so, that So either. what are we doing here? Well, no. Because we, think about this. And Carter made this point earlier in the week on Market Call that the relative performance of Berkshire Hathaway to the S&P 500 from the lows, and he made this point, Danny, from the lows in 09 is horrible, mm. okay? And think about how many warrants that guy got for doing the sorts of deals that he did in G In his bathtub. Yeah, well, Bank like of all America. that sort of stuff. Bank America and Goldman Sachs, right. and the list goes on and on. So, like, I look at that guy, I think it's a hokey bunch of bullshit Whoa. that he's been putting on for all these years. I think it's a huge scam, okay. to be honest Hokey and all that notwithstanding, yeah. Danny Moses. Some yeah. Two things came out this week that sort of caught my eye. 
Number one, Berkshire Hathaway, the aforementioned that's been trading like dog shit, $167 billion of cash just sitting around. Now, my grandmother used to say to me, little guy, she called me little guy, you have to save for a rainy day. Always save for a rainy day because the rainy day is going to come. So it's clear that the folks at Berkshire are saving for something. Put that on the shelf for a second. And then there's a little something called the Buffett indicator. Danny Moses, I know you're familiar with this. That is basically the market cap of all investable securities in the United States divided by GDP. The level that gets him concerned typically is somewhere around 120% is when it's all. We have now reached 185%. Flashing red. Last time we saw it remotely this close was in 2021 when we got over 200% when the world was coming, crashing down. Danny Moses, I say to you, if we've agreed Ex Dan Nathan, that Warren Buffett sits on, he's on the, Mount what is that, Rushmore. Mount Rushmore? Yeah. He's on Mount Rushmore. He's got $167 billion and his indicator is flashing red. Thoughts on that? Well, that was a long setup, but I did, it was a nice job by me. He certainly is one of the most revered investors. Yes. Certainly yeah, one of the OGs, a, a long buy and hold kind of guy. I won't go into all the things that he's done because I think there are some controversial positions he had and, and so we won't go there. But Druckenmiller is the guy that I look to the most just in terms of, I think, the way that he thinks about the market. But put that aside, Buffett is a long-term investor. When he buys something, it's not for a trade. So he's got to have something that he sees tremendous long-term opportunity. And obviously, guy, to your point, He's not seeing a lot of those opportunities right now. He'd rather earn 5% with his cash sitting there and wait for that moment. We know he's big in the insurance market, obviously big in the energy market at the time. And I'm sure if he could put more in Oxy, he probably would, but he's probably limit there. So every indicator, I could argue that indicator guy, maybe GDP is going to grow 100%. I don't think it's going to happen. Maybe GDP grows more than we think a little bit, and maybe stocks retreat a little bit and you get to 150, 160. But that's one of 20 different indicators that are currently flashing. And I think if you want to give Warren Buffett credit for something, like I just mentioned, I think he tries to buy quality companies that he think have long-term power, long-term presence. M&A opportunities, et cetera. And that's just not what this market's all about right now. It's not his type of market. I'll say this about Warren Buffett. You say $178 billion in cash. It's interesting that Apple is one of their huge positions, right? And it's been a home run for them. And if you think about that over the last 10 years or so, what Warren Buffett in his $180 billion is doing is he's waiting for another market dislocation because that's where he actually gets all the alpha when you think about it. And it'll be really interesting to see, very sadly, he won't be with us at some point in the not-so-distant future. Where, so you know something? He's an old man. Oh. And, and so obviously his pal Munger is no longer with us and RIP to him, but they're waiting for a big dislocation. And exactly. we just that's, haven't that, had one. That's exactly the point. They're waiting for something to happen. And I don't think any of us are saying that is a market timing indicator by any stretch of imagination. But in all seriousness, when a group individual of that magnitude, and by the way, as Danny mentioned, there are other people that are in the same camp. Jamie Dimon earlier this week. David D. Sol Solomon earlier this week making, I don't want to say similar comments, but comments along the same lines where they're seeing some of the concerns. But when you see a Berkshire Hathaway with a cash position, again, of that magnitude and the thing, the indicator that he has said himself is one of the biggest things that he looks at flashing red. You can say, I get it and say, you know what? It's different this time. That's fine. But if we didn't bring it to your attention, we wouldn't be doing our jobs. Yeah. And I guess the point is going back to the concentration and then the broadening out. It's just Warren Buffett and in, in, in Berkshire Hathaway. They're not traders, right? They're taking a, a probably a five, 10, even longer term view. Every once in a while, they get things wrong. You remember about 10 years ago, guy, mm-hmm. I think they loaded into large integrated oils and stuff. At the same time, they were buying, I think, Apple and they cut those positions. I remember he cut a position in 
and IBM when you get those 13 Fs. Uh, usually those stocks used to rally when it would be disclosed that Buffett took a position. Those stocks were lights out once he started selling them because if the best value investor on the planet no longer thinks you're cheap and, and well discounted stock to the market is not a value, why the hell do you want to be holding that? To me, I just think that let's pay attention here, people. If Google can't get their act together, that stock's going much lower. Apple looks like it's probably got another 10% to the downside before they get something going in AI. The Tesla story gets worse. I follow this guy, Troy Tesla-like Danny. I sent you his Q1 estimates. They keep going lower, much lower than where the street is for deliveries. I actually think Microsoft is probably the next one to see a kind of 10% pullback. If you look at this thing from early January, this stock was trading, I don't know, down there at what, 365, 366, just topped out at 410 or so. To me, if that story doesn't get incrementally better, where they're be able to goose their out quarter or whatever, you're going to have a pullback in that one too. So you guys might remember this. It was floated around. I think it was more than rumor. So in 2008, the S&P was obviously on its ass. They made the low in March of 2009. Buffett was out there supposedly, and I think accurately at Goldman Sachs, selling puts in the S&P. I think you guys mm -hmm. remember that. It was around 1,200, the S&P. He sold the 1,100, 1,000, 900, 800. And there was a Duke and Duke moment there, which really spooked the market. You look for reasons that markets are down, whatever. So the rumors were that Goldman had him by the balls, so to speak. And it was margin call time and top of everything else that was going on at the time. So the quid pro quo was, I'll do a convert for you. You'll help me out. So if you remember that whole time period, again, there were more than rumors. I didn't see the trades, but I just wanted to mention that as well. So even the great ones that try to time the downside in the market have that. The irony also, I think it was 08 where he was out very aggressively calling options, weapons of mass destruction, financial weapons of mass destruction. And everybody knew that he was a huge downside put seller in SPX and just taking in that premium and not expecting the sort of event that happened in late 08 and 09. But I obviously, he had warrants to the upside. So he obviously had this kind of interesting trade on where he had this downside sensitivity to vol exploding in his face. And then he got a lot of long-term leverage when everything did explode to it. I heard that story, a similar story. So back up Danny Moses, the stories were definitely out there. And a lot of things were going around the market at the time. It just goes to show you, even the best get it wrong sometimes, to your point earlier. But yeah. Danny, this has been interesting for me. By the way, you mentioned rumors, one of the great albums of all time. I think Fleetwood Mac, who I do believe sold their list of songs and they're basically what do they call that thing again? catalog catalog over the last couple of years rumors a great album and Fleetwood Mac's a great band all the different things that went on in that bit fascinating stuff yeah I would love to get like a Mick Fleetwood or Stevie Nicks on our podcast it would be great but I digress Black Rock not Black Stone Black Rock very large organization Danny Moses they put out a paper earlier this week and I actually agree with this, talking about there's going to be a pivot back to active investing away from passive investing. And I think that speaks to a lot of the things that you thought would happen this year as we highlighted late last year what some of the themes of 2024 were going to be. And lo and behold, they're clearly a fan of Danny Moses and they're picking up what you laid down. Yes, it's interesting that the largest passive manager in the world would put out a note saying that they think there's going to be a little bit of a movement more towards active. I think they've seen the saturation level. I think we're out of symbols actually for ETFs at this point. I don't think there's anything left. So we have to go to a whole different add letters in the alphabet, so to speak. But I do think that when we see the cracks in passive, I think we're going to see it in fixed income prior to seeing it 
inequities, in my opinion. We're already seeing that happen. Passive fixed income just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I think that people are stock picking, but they're also bond picking. And I think with the crisis, and yes, it is a crisis in commercial real estate, whether it's centered or spread out or not, it is an ongoing, it's going to be an ongoing issue. I think that's going to prove to be somewhat of a catalyst for that. So I agree with what they wrote. Obviously, if they're right about it, it may not be great for them in the long run, but no, it's a good point. I've enjoyed this conversation. As have I. You didn't cast complete aspersions toward Fleetwood Mac, although that was your inclination to do. When we come back, we're going to talk to Stuart Sopp about a number of things, inflation, and maybe his views on the great Fleetwood Mac. So stick around. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections to the upcoming event, Salt iConnections in Asia, taking place on November 11th through the 13th at Marina Bay Sands, Singapore. Salt iConnections Asia is the largest capital introductions event in the Asia-Pacific region, bringing together 1,500 leading asset allocators and alternative asset managers from around the world. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. In today's hyper-fast markets, it's never been more important to consider every option to raise capital, drive growth, and create value. Stay one step ahead with Strategic Alternatives, a podcast from RBC Capital Markets. In this season, RBC's experts will examine how corporates and investors are evaluating their strategic plans, reassessing their portfolios, and reallocating capital to help them lead today and define tomorrow. Tune in to Strategic Alternatives, the RBC Capital Markets podcast. A warm welcome back to the Down the Tape podcast, Guy Adami, Dan Nathan, and now we're joined by the aforementioned Stuart Sop, the CEO and co-founder of Current. Stuart, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Guy. Stuart, you might have heard me ask Danny Moses a question. I'm going to ask you this question. Fleetwood Mac, where do you put them in your list of artists? I'm a young man at 47, mm -hmm. so it's a little ahead of my time. However, I have seen a TikTok with someone skateboarding to Fleetwood Mac, uh -huh. and I thought that was very cool. Okay, fair enough. That's a good answer. I don't necessarily... I mean, I don't know what that means. I'm young. Do you know who George Washington is? Uh, I've of heard of him. Do. So, yep. I mean, I would not suggest you weren't... A anyway, I digress. <laughs> Before we get into the granularity of what's going on, yeah. we're two months into the year. How are things going at Current, Stu? Things are going well from a corporate perspective. We've launched our bill card product in July last year, which is doing extremely well, building credit for the everyday American. And we've launched more broadly our Paycheck Advance product up to $500 between paychecks. And that has gone live at the beginning of this month, the beginning of February. So from a corporate perspective, we're doing really well, seeing lots of healthy growth and good economics and good marketing economics. And then from a consumer standpoint, it's tax refund season. We started to see the big chats hit for our members about two weeks ago. And we saw some of the bigger files hit this week. 
And so what does that mean? It means the, the everyday American is paying down their auto loans, their credit cards, they're paying their friends back, and they're trying to make ends meet. And, and so this is a good Goldilocks period that you're seeing for the, for the everyday American. From this point on, probably until the end of March, things will be okay. All right, let's talk about that inflation data that mm -hmm. started this morning, because again, I think the way you categorize the everyday American, it's like a 625 and lower FICO store. That's right. And so Guy and I, listen, we are not economists by any means. What do you say? You're not humorless enough, I'm guy? not smart enough nor oh, humorless enough I was gonna, I was gonna to let be you an say economist. that you're smart list there. But it's interesting because as long as we've been market participants, mm -hmm. right, and we think about the U.S. economy and we think about what drives it, it is the U.S. consumer. And when there's problems, it usually starts in that kind of everyday mm -hmm. American and lower. Last year, at some point, I can't remember when it was, you came on Fast Money with us and you talked about, because you have this direct deposit for a paycheck, you said that you're seeing more of your members with two paychecks coming in, That's meaning right. they went out to get other jobs. So when you think about this Goldilocks period that we're in right now, okay, so we've had this dramatic rise in rates, but this Goldilocks with folks getting money back from the government, how long does that usually last? And, and then really bridge the gap between what you were seeing with the, the, the consumer, let's say six months ago, and what you're seeing now, and where do you think it's going in the next few months? Since I was on last year, we saw an increase of our members taking two or more jobs, and we saw an incremental 10% into the new year. So that pressure has maintained. So people are working harder than ever before. They're trying to make ends meet. They're trying to do the right thing. Let's not get into the accuracy of the employment data from seasonality in January, but it was a it's a big number and they continue to be fairly tight. And so I think when you couple that, th those two numbers are like completely related. Basically, people are trying to find second jobs. They're trying to make ends meet. They have not given up. And there's still some gig economy work out there and some flex to be able to do that. So when you're asking how long does this last, it's really tax refund season. It's half of Feb and most of March. And then things, I think, get a little tighter into Q2 for the consumer. And so you can see that coming through in disposable personal income, which has not gone up that much. And we're seeing, obviously, all-time highs in credit card debt and personal loans and things like that. So working two jobs, taking on more personal debt, more revolving, more dangerous stuff. We're in a sort of a truce for six weeks or so. And I think it then starts to bite again for the U.S. consumer in Q2. Let's talk about this inflation data really quickly. This is from Axios. We'll put it in the show notes mm -hmm. here. The, that core inflation reading was the highest in a year uh, on a month-to-month -month basis. And I think this was really interesting. It said overall personal income rose 1% in January. At first glance, a huge gain driven by Social Security, cost of living adjustment, and higher dividends on stock portfolios. But tease it apart, Americans' income picture, guy, you've been making this point, was gloomier, okay? Disposable personal income after taxes rose a mere 0.3%. So you've corrected me on a couple pods because we were saying, okay, well, no, so a person, no, 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 but you're right to do it because, again, this is not our ballywick, if you will. We're just taking in this stuff. But if, again, personal income is not rising as much as inflation, then sooner or later you're going to have a problem. Put that together with what Stu's talking about this period we're in right now. Some of the data can look better better than it really is under the surface. And that's why I believe, and Stu can sort of opine on this as well, that's why I believe, although the stock market's effectively at an all-time high, the unemployment rate is still below 4%. Inflation is still going up, but obviously less fast than it had been going up over the last year and a half. All signs theoretically should point to people feeling good about the economy. But the reality suggests, and the polls suggest, that people really don't feel well at all. As a matter of fact, I think the approval rating for the administration, or as you pointed out on an earlier show, lack of approval rating. Disapproval. Disapproval is somewhere around 30% or so. Stu, I throw mm -hmm. this back to you. I understand 
why people feel really poorly about things. But you answered it, I think, with your last response. But do you get that sense that that's why people are so disenchanted? Yeah, I think it's exactly that. I think there's a lot of promises that are made at the through COVID that were probably not adhered to. Wait, what do you mean? Let's talk about that for a second. Because I, one of the headlines this week was that the administration's canceling more than a billion dollars of student debt. That was a promise made in COVID, and they're trying to follow through on it. Mm, and I give the president in an election a lot, year, but they're canceling the debt. So if you are one of those folks who has that mm -hmm. student debt and you're having it canceled, well, you're probably not unhappy. You know, about it's it, interesting. Right? No. That's an interesting term. And I don't want to play politics. It's not play canceled. politics. It's no, we're paying for it. Somebody's we're, so paying. We're for all paying. It. Well, I know, but think about it. If you're like, <laughs> no, but any, but it's it's important to point out. It just yeah. doesn't go into the ether. I mean, no, no, no. it's paying for. We're, but anyway, we're continue. Yeah, I, I just think that there was lots of promises made about the future of America, obviously, and at the beginning of every administration, and the lots of money was printed and distributed, and the sum was given directly to everyday American households, and that's just it did something. It increased savings rates, and we're still drilling those down a little bit. They were elevated for a couple of years, but we're getting to the end of that, right? And so there's no free energy in the world. Inflation went up because we just printed all this money and there's only so many fixed goods and supply chain issues that we're all working through and now have been largely resolved X some energy stuff. And so I think we just got to this point where buffer and that and that bank that that the average household had is now almost gone and you're working harder mm -hmm. for the same thing. So the average grocery bill, you, you can see it out there, CPI and this core inflation, they are not really good measures of an average person's basket of goods with their fuel and all this other stuff. They really aren't. And just because the rate of change has slowed, the absolute price is 30 to 50% higher, mm -hmm. depending on where you live. And no one got a 30 to 50% wage increase. Mm -hmm. And because if you're living paycheck to paycheck, staples like rent and food and fuel just make up the vast majority of your spend, right? Unfortunately, it's hitting the people who probably work the hardest and have the least left over. And I think that is translating into dissatisfaction. And we're just seeing some of these numbers start to crest and roll over into Q2, I think. The numbers suggest, and again, this is sort of nonsense of people in the United States live paycheck to paycheck. About 70% of people said that if they were to have an emergency expense of about $500, they wouldn't be able to pay that. I think one in six That's people, right. Stu, in this country are what they call food insecure. Now, I don't know the accuracy of that, but the numbers are what they are. And that speaks to, again, this disenchantment and the problems that people are facing, which, again, goes back to your business and how you're trying to help and elevate that client base. Insatiable demand for liquidity credit building so that you can access cheaper liquidity, the cost of that capital, and also banking services that can help you move forward in life. And while it's great to having built and delivered these products, also it's a little sad that our TAM increases substantially year after year in this current environment. I think our listeners have gotten to know you pretty well. And Guy and I, we've gotten to know you in the company and, and Trevor and, yep. and your team pretty well. You guys are existing to serve a customer that is not well served by the existing financial services community. And, and again, you are not a nonprofit. You are a, a no. Bank. That's right. You're not a bank, but you're a financial, you know, fintech company that you're looking to kind of serve an underserved group of Americans. And so good on you on that. I just want to add one last thing about that inflation data. So I think it's interesting because this kind of lines up with what you just said, Stu. They end this Axios piece. Sluggage real income growth could dampen future consumer spending and keep Americans' yeah. uh, economic optimism low. And that is really the backdrop of what's going on when you think about yeah. the economy that we're in and how people are feeling about it. And when they head to the polls, whether 
it be in the primaries right now or in the fall. Again, it, it's just odd to me when you think about what's gone on over the last few years with risk assets, despite the mm-hmm. fact that we've had interest rates go where they are. So let's talk about the Fed sure. and what this means for them a little bit. Some of your views on yields here. Mm-hmm. We have a 10-year U.S. Treasury yield that's stuck at what, four and a quarter, mm-hmm. 430 yeah. or so, up from 3.8% just a couple months ago, down from 5% yeah. four or five months ago. We have the Fed funds rate to upper end of the band at five and a half percent, which a lot of folks coming into this year thought was going to be lower by now. So the rate cuts have been pushed out. Thoughts on yields in the backdrop of this employment data, inflation data, and and really what we're seeing in the economy overall. Where do you think yields are going? Because again, we're talking about three cuts now, right, Guy? And that was what? From six to three. My conspiracy hat on again towards the end of last year. I think the Fed, remember they came out into December for the Santa rally and really took down yields back to the levels that you just mentioned. And the S&P exploded. Right, which it It should. It was 45.50 and now it's just under 5,100. Right. Right. And so the Santa rally is a real thing to manage liquidity over the end of year, right? So there's lots of market technical reasons why the Fed would want to do that. And then they walked it all back uh, as uh, as, as much as they could into the new year. I think that earnings have held up. People are losing their jobs, but on the margin to improve some of their reports, some of their earnings calls, right? It's like a modest sort of letting go or shedding people. It's not like 25%, 20%. It's all this sort of 2 to 13%, yeah. which is like things are getting tighter and harder for many corporates in America. And so what they're doing is just managing that glide path to a so- what they would assume as a soft landing. When it comes to the tens at four and a quarter, I think there is way more room at this point in time on the top side. I think yields go, as a betting man, four and three quarters. Mm-hmm. We could even double top, but which I wouldn't bet money on that. Who knows? Bitcoin's at 63,000. So who knows what happens? So I think the market will do the talking and most of the tightening. The Fed, they have to talk more hawkishly for sure than they were. You look at the RBNZ, right? Smaller economy. A month ago, we're going, hey, we're going to have to hike here. That was the first canary in the coal mine, right? And and so I was looking at that going, wow, okay, we're, we're really going back. This is like the 70s. We've seen the first peak, but actually maybe we're in the second trough here. So maybe we're going to reaccelerate. We haven't done enough. We're not, we're not tight enough because of the QE, QT games that the Fed and the Treasury have been playing over the last couple of years. So I think we're now in this point where a lot of market operations are rolling off. BTFD mm-hmm. at the end of March, we look at the reverse repos, like drilling down savings rate for the consumers, nearly break even. So I think they're looking at this going, all right, inflation's picking up. All the stimulus kind of behind the scenes money is going to roll off naturally. Now we're not going to extend anything. So things are going to get tighter. And then the market is now going to start, if we start talking like, hey, maybe we don't cut so much this year, the market's going to price it higher. So I think they're going to talk the market into doing the job for them because they sure as hell don't want to hike. There's no way they want to hike, right? And so I think they're going to do that. And then what I think will happen is into end of Q1, into Q2, you start seeing this tightening really affect earnings and predictions on the equity market. And guess what? Mag7 probably gets nailed on that. Probably. Well, it's already the Fab Four guy. You a fan of the Fab Four? Yeah, the Beatles. Why not? If you were to rate Stuart, this is for you, okay? I want you to think yeah. about this, okay? We know who the Beatles are, but for those that don't know, I'll sort of put it out there. Obviously, the great Paul McCartney, yep, on the bass. John Lennon, one of the great guitarists of all time, George Harrison, yep. and obviously Ringo Starr. If you were to rate those band members in terms of talent, in terms of talent, how would you rate the Beatles? Wow. Ringo Starr was the voice of Thomas the Tank Engine for a while. So I'm not sure what Yeah, you didn't know this? Oh, there you go. So he was also a TV star, multi-talented there. So you're putting Ringo high up there. That's never been done. Never been done. I'm just saying because I know that he did, he's done Uh multi-mixed media. Clearly Paul McCartney, number one. I agree with that. Maybe George Harrison next. I agree with that. 
Here we Lennon go. three. Lennon three. And All right, hold on. That's probably Paul McCartney. It's just recency bias. To no, be honest. no, no. If John no, Lennon was no. still around, no, no, John Lennon. Oh no, don't please. Uh, now we're gonna get off topic because a even, lot of folks would put George Harrison number one. Let me tell you something. With a you. lot of people yes. would put John Lennon number four. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, so Stu, there are forty-five I'm, million people in the United States. The ATOS a lot. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. I didn't go to law school, although I know all good lawyers should know the answer to the question before they ask it. I don't know the answer to this question. Understanding that probably rates staying where they are is the right answer, but you can't choose that. What should we be rooting for? Yields to go higher or yields to go lower? I know the obvious answer is lower. I'm not so sure, though, that's the case. Thoughts on that? Man, you you, you phrased it in such a very particular way. (laughs) Both of them actually have the same outcome. So if we're rooting for lower, it means something blew up. And I don't think anything blows up until they go higher. So I actually, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be perverse and say both of them are the same answer. We're in this environment, Dan, where I think that either outcome, to Stu's point, I didn't, we didn't rehearse this. Right. Either outcome could actually be deleterious. You like that? Yeah. For, that for, means bad. That assets. means bad. Yeah, I'm what are your thoughts that there, Dan, Nathan? The soft landing consensus is about as broad as the the confidence in a, a recession in 2023 coming into it right now. I tend to be a bit of a contrarian, but I'm looking around here and I'm saying, yeah, there's some stuff under the surface. Guy, you've been making this point. It really is about unemployment. When mm-hmm. that starts to tick over 4%, you just mentioned this, Stu, that it depends how you are calculating that number. But even if that number, let's just say it's calculated properly and that number is 4.3% accounting for the people that long-term unemployed or this or whatever, then actually can make a case that the economy is doing okay with interest rates where they are, with Fed funds where they are. Let's just say throw a dart and just say we're at 4.3%. So we're not at 50-year lows. Mm -hmm. We're at 30-year lows, whatever. You know what I'm saying? And inflation, let's say, is manageable relative to where. I don't know. I, I I I don't know either. I'll say this, Stu. I think what's happening hmm. in the economy are people spending money. People are combating inflation with credit. And yes. that's manifesting itself in the numbers that's that right. you just portrayed before. That's right. $1.15 trillion of credit card debt. U.S. consumer credit in aggregate is north of $17.5 trillion. The average rate on a credit card loan now is 21.47%. If that's a great economy, then what do you usually say, Dan? Have at it. Have at it, people. Thoughts <laughs> on that, Stu? Yeah, I think you're right. That's exactly how we're looking at things. In terms of like fragility, where I'd be looking for anything to fray, at least in our spaces, in trucking or logistics, if you see any kind of like mass job losses on that, that would be the heartbeat mm-hmm. of America starting to say, okay, this is like over for a little bit. Wage inflation or wage disposable income is either not going down or is mildly higher, and people are taking on far more debt. That's just basic math now because yep. the savings rates have been drilled to close to zero. And I was on Fast Money the other day mm-hmm. saying- You did same. a great job, by Th- the way. Thank you. I'm trying to get over that and this was before the Discover Cap One news. Yeah, and I'm had, not privy we, to that number. No, no, no. I was not privy to that. So my point was then that you should watch the credit card space because I can see things in our data and what I'm seeing in the market whereby subprime charge-offs and even near-prime charge-offs are extreme, like the double of what you would normally have. And also the cost of capital. A lot of credit card firms, very cyclical business, but a lot of credit card firms have funded near zero for like a decade. Now they're funding at like 5% plus so for whatever that is. So unless they have a bank, right? And so you're going to see stress in that system. They're going to pull up their credit boxes. They're not going to extend as much anymore. So they're saying, okay, 
I can't afford to go down into the deep subprime or even subprime or anywhere near it. And actually, I'm only in mm -hmm. superprime. And you've seen that from Bank of America, Wells Fargo. They're proud. They're saying, hey, we've hardly lent to anyone, guys. Yeah. We should reward us. And so there's a whole tranche of America just more and more every that's month exactly cannot right. get access to this vital credit or lending that they need. And so that's what I'm calling out. There's a problem emerging here. How does this Capital One bid for Discover mm -hmm. fix that? If this is a, a customer base that they serve to some degree and let's talk about some of the reverberations around fintech and what it means for a company like yours that is basically serving uh, a very similar customer in a different fashion though. Cap One, I don't know any more than anyone else has yeah. read, right? But Cap One, famous barbell strategy, whether it's subprime and they're a super prime, right? So they have this sort of barbell strategy that works for them. It's, it's just an interesting deal and sort of opportunistic is the word I was thinking of because Discover is being banned around a little bit and they were starting to see losses. You remember that report? I think they earned yep. Q4 earnings, yep. I think it was in Jan. It was extreme and it was like, okay, they're not doing too well. There's three sort of interesting things that Cap One get here. One is obviously scale. You merge Discover and Cap One. That is going to be, I think it was something like $250 billion loan book. This is like an extreme size. It's number probably two issuer behind number JP two, Morgan. That's right. Yeah. Number two, and probably could easily scale past that at that point, right? That's an exciting thing for both of those companies. And also if I was to be, again, a little conspiracy theorist, if you were to merge the companies and you were both seeing extreme charge-offs on the barbell on the lower end, all of a sudden you would have synergies. You could probably fire a lot of people and like sort of cover a lot of the problems that you're experiencing, right? So that could be good for both companies. Two, regulatory arbitrage. They've got this Durban carve-out for Discover, right? And so all of a sudden their debit interchange and all this stuff that we're allowed to take advantage of because we partner with smaller banks, all of a sudden Cap One now has access to that at scale, right? So that's a big thing. Reverberation for fintech, maybe that's a big one. And then three is the combined entities like an issuer and network, right? So it's just like both of those things at scale. They got their own network. That's pretty exciting, I'm sure, for Cap One to to own. It looks more like Amex in that sort of way. So, so guy, we had a great conversation with Trevor. I, I saw him early C today. CTO in the, in the and co-founder right. of Current on OK Computer. I think it was last week or two weeks ago, and we were talking about this deal. And it's interesting because you just yeah. mentioned, and go listen to that, actually. He, he did a fabulous job on that. But he was talking about this closed network and yep. really trying to make it look a bit more like American Express. And That's it's right. interesting to me right now, American Express is just like at all-time highs, right? Yep. And you just mentioned Discover. Like that quarter that they reported in January as their yeah. Q4 was not good. Like yeah, their yeah. expenses were really high. They're talking about risk management. They're talking about regulatory. They're talking about a whole host of other things. And generally in the stock market, do, we don't see deals for companies when they're doing really poorly, right? So talk to us a little bit about the timing of that, because the other thing is, and I know you're close to the private fintech community, mm -hmm. both investors and founders. It seems like from where I sit, because I'm also close to them, there's stuff going on there in, is, in the yeah. space right now. So it seems like folks, despite yields and despite maybe the, the worries about the economy and, and, and the like, people are optimistic about deal making. I think that's right. M&A talk, I would say... I don't know anything, but I'm sure there's a bunch of confidential IPOs being filed for tech and fintech over the next sort of 12 months, something like that. So that's a good thing. Obviously, all-time highs in equities. So that helps in that tailwind. The Cap One Discover thing, there's some nuance to it. Now they can do debit outside the Durban Amendment. So that's interesting. And so how does that affect fintechs out there? I think for the same reason that they're working together, a lot of fintechs are talking, which is scale matters. If you ascribe to this idea that we're not going to ZERP, it's gone and we're just going to have 3% minimum, and maybe it goes to 8% over 5, 10 years. Cost of capital is just much higher. Rebundling, looking at like real profitable businesses, that's where the focus has been in the private sectors. Costs have been 
a focus, so has scale, and also just getting great unit economics, which you can do. You can do all those things in fintechs because you have a tech firm and you're on the front foot with products and things like that. I would say largely it hasn't had the same M&A fallout that everyone was predicting because fintechs and tech companies have moved very quickly to get their sort of houses in order. However, going forward, going against some of these big companies, public companies that are emerging, you got to get to scale, right? How does that happen? I think that's at the top of everyone's mind going forward. You mentioned the Durbin Amendment. I think that mm-hmm. is Dick Durbin that's from right. Illinois, yeah. spelled so. I-N. So I'm going to ask you to go back in time. You said you're still a relatively young man, but <laughs> when I was a commodities trader, Dan, I actually went to South Africa and I visited the Durbin Deep Mine. Hmm. That's A-N. That's a gold mine. Way down in the ground. All right, so you're getting a nerd gold. That's what you're going to do right now. I see where you're going right here. <laughs> exactly. Forget about the Bitcoin for a second. Gold's hanging around here. And I know you have thoughts because I know that deep down, you're still like a commodity FX guy. Yeah. So you see gold, dollar goes up, gold hangs in. Yields go up, gold hangs in. It's hanging around. It's like in the movie, remember Rounders? I mentioned this the other day. When Matt Damon's playing with John Malkovich all night long, hang on, check, check, hanging around until you until he snaps. Is gold about to snap higher? I don't think it's super soon. We've got real real interest rates. So the fact that it's not going down under this is really important. Yeah. If you're a gold bug, you should be celebrating the fact that it actually marginally went up. Right. Last time I was on this show, I think it was at 2000, probably four months, three months ago. It's at 2050-ish mm-hmm. right now. It didn't go down, by the way, if, if I'm right on that rates view. We're going to see more positive real rates in the, in the short term, I think, at least. I think we should be looking at it like that. I think from a structural perspective, I've been pretty consistent. Gold is now money. The BRICS nations are basically moving gold from the West to the East or the South, whichever way you want to call it. And so that's providing that underlying bid on any dip. Right. And so we are not ready yet for gold to rally because we need the dollar to come off. And the gold and Bitcoin, other than what's happened very recently mm-hmm. with Bitcoin, are generally anti-dollar trades and the dollar is not ready to sell off in my So, so let's talk about that. The, so guy, you buried the lead because what he really wanted to do was talk about the nerd gold. He wanted to talk about Bitcoin <laughs> and this thing in the last yeah. month or so, it was under 40,000. I think it was 37,000 yeah. in January 20th or something like that. Here we are right now as we're discussing this, 62,000. It traded as high as... 636450 today. Okay, so this thing is up on a huge spike in a very short period of time. Stu, what's going on here? Because if we have a dollar that is stayed put, we see see yields where they are. Is it related to spot Bitcoin ETFs? It could be one of those scenarios like you guys laid out, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Mm -hmm. This is just, what did you say, Guy? For years during the crypto winter, you said this is also like gold. It's a hedge against central banks ineptitude, and they're bound to make a mistake if they haven't already yet. I, I think it's still is. I think a guy's right on that. I have not been as bullish as the market has showed me it is, mainly because I see it as an anti-dollar trade. Now, the, the one time, maybe it is one time, but onboarding of all these ETFs, right? Have just It's just been massive. And you can look at the numbers because it's all public information and it's very obvious and easy to see. You combine that with the halvening, which is the Bitcoin mm-hmm. reward going in half in a month. That's so 2017. I, well, it happens way. every the four years. Yeah, yeah. So it happens every, Same. it's code. Yeah. So we know yeah. when it happens-ish. Yeah. So you look, that's part of it for sure. Miners and miner strategy and whether they hold on or dump and all this stuff. So yeah. there's all these games that have been played for at least nine months before the halvening. And then you've got this, basically we've got fiat money being converted into a fixed scarce asset that you cannot print and um, we're just seeing that it's absolutely nuts right now right so that's what's happening well it's it is interesting and i mentioned durban deep mine the mining stocks <laughs> did you and- see bitcoin in there 
Did I mention in the, <laughs> when I was there? No, I didn't. I actually went there. I'll show you my passport. I believe you. I was unbelievable. I had never been to the continent of Africa. Some think went, that Satoshi is South African. Oh, is that what people know? That's you just or Australian. No, I'm being serious. Isn't like, it just how funny? Finney? Isn't, like it how, guy, isn't it how Finney? Satoshi. I think how Finney is just Satoshi. But so. what's interesting in terms of the finite number of dollars that are investable, I find fascinating, Stu. And I'm not asking you to play stock market here. I'm just curious as to your thoughts from thirty thousand feet. The stock market, I think we can agree, is effectively at an all-time high. True or false? True. Gold is effectively at an all-time high within $50. True, True or false? True. Mining stocks, Newmont Mining, for example, is one-third the price of its all-time high. Explain that to me. If you can, if you can't I, say, Guy, I have no effing idea. I have an opinion. Please. <laughs> so miners, and especially junior miners, in my experience, and it's a horrible experience of owning some of these names mm -hmm. over decades. I can give you an analogy, actually, Please. after this. Please. But basically, gold is Bitcoin, and those miners are shit coins. And oh, so oh, what oh. typically happens is you need the core underlying asset to rally first. Once that stops rallying, the shit coins then catch up because obviously there's a delta to it and, and you get the late, late movers in and it has a higher alpha to it. Gold isn't moving. There's no way those miners are going to move right now. So wait until gold goes to three and a half thousand. And when it stops moving, you buy the miners. Yeah. And I guess there's another way, Guy, you going to the Durban mine and thinking Durban and, deep. And, and being a, <laughs> in a gold bug and this and that, or whatever. You guys are aging out. I'm just saying, <laughs> no, I'm just being serious. And so think about this. If the global market cap of gold is 14 trillion and Bitcoin just crossed one, one trillion, trillion yeah. you're going to get half the market. I know. I've, no, I know. But Kelly, yeah, our yeah, great friend, yeah, has yeah, been yeah. talking about this for over 10 years. Yeah. Right. And so I just don't see who the incremental buyer of gold for the reasons that people are Central buying banks. Bitcoin. Central bank. And he brings that, you bring that up a, a lot. Stop. But as Bitcoin becomes more accepted in the global financial system and this ETF mm. thing, make no mistake about it, is a good entree to it. And if you have enough people buying them in their Fidelity IRA or buying it on That's current right. or this or whatever, could it go to $3 trillion, $4 trillion for the same reasons that I, people own gold? Sure. Absolutely. I, I, I I think Edward Snowden, not that I follow him, but I did see his tweet and he was coming out and saying something like, it'll be clear that a central bank has bought Bitcoin recently. So that was also- Come on. We've always already seen, what was it? Not Ecuador. Yeah, Venezuela. El Salvador. El Salvador, sorry. Yeah, yeah. El Salvador. Okay, I that, knew that. That isn't- I'm not even, I'm not even yeah, on top of it. Because you, you pay attention, guy. So even El Salvador, that's a national government. Okay, it's very small. So is this another small government or is it like Singapore? Is it, is it someone like Switzerland? North Korea, to be honest with you. No, <laughs> I mean, the, serious. But like, they already Buy it. But, they if already you, know, but if you were one of these kind of rogue states, why mm -hmm. wouldn't you be buying that rogue risk asset that yeah. the whole West is a little bit obsessed with, if you will? But like, guy, we got a couple more things to do before we get out of here. We spend a lot of time on all of our pods because when we talk about the Mag 7, which is now the Fab 4 or whatever, the mega trend was obviously these chatbots introduced, ChatGPT late 2022. And we've talked about this ad nauseum. Without this AI virus that infected the stock market, mm. 2023 in the stock market doesn't look like it did. Let's be very clear. And then you have things like this GLP-1, this mega trend, and Lily and Novo become a more than a trillion dollars in market cap. So there are some really good secular sort of stories that we know are going to play out over years, maybe decades. They got pulled forward here a little bit. Give us a sense of what you think as a buyer of technology, as a company, right? Yep. You're a big enterprise buyer. You guys have a big deal with Google Cloud. You rely mm -hmm. on them for a whole heck of a lot of stuff. 
I want to do one thing for our listener here. I want to differentiate between, okay, the excitement in around from an enterprise standpoint, like how you're going to drive productivity and drive profitability for your business mm-hmm. and a better product and service for your customers, okay? So that's using these hyperscalers and, mm-hmm. and all the investment in R&D that they do. And then the flip side of it is all the things that I think got a lot of consumers excited about is like chatbots and stuff like that. They're two really different things, right? And they're going to play out really differently. Give us a sense for that because, yeah. again, Amazon – Meta, obviously Microsoft and OpenAI and that partnership, Google and what they're trying to do, they're falling on their face. But Trevor made a great argument to me a week ago is that Google Cloud is doing a great job in this yeah. thing. It's really the commercialization, the consumer facing product is is what they're falling down on right now. Yeah, it sounds like crypto again, doesn't it? Sounds yeah. like crypto 2.0 yeah. where you have a, a solution looking for a problem, yeah, right? Yeah, and yeah. it feels a little bit like the same thing again, right? Yeah, I've been consistent on this. I think the first part that you mentioned, which is like corporate efficiency, yeah, we we have it. You saw Klarna came out earlier this week. Maybe they're going public or something like that, so they're, they're becoming more vocal. But they 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 showed deflection in their CS, and they they saw significant deflection in their OpenAI integration. Mm-hmm. So I think, and there were some big moves, by the way, in a French or German BPO name, which was like basically hiring people to do customer service. Yeah. And I thought they saw like a thirty percent down day or something like that. So I think you're seeing the seismic shifts of I think fairly autonomous, easy-ish tasks where it just needs context and data to then tell someone else, those jobs are going to go away pretty quickly, right? I think that's the acceleration on that side. And I think any business like ours, we, we also have BPOs and things like that. And yeah. so that'll be accruing to our bottom line. We've got to make sure, though, that we have great customer experience and it's not just a fire right. and forget and all the things. But a lot of the time, I think these LLMs are doing a really good job of translating corporate information and customer service because it's mm-hmm. wide and it has colloquialisms and all that stuff to a consumer on demand whenever they need it. Yeah. And I guess a big differentiation here and maybe you can kind of open this mm-hmm. a little bit is like NVIDIA has gained a trillion and a half dollars in market cap over the last over, let's call it a year or so, because the demand to train these large language models, right? Mm-hmm. And then to build the servers and the data centers and that's going to support all this stuff. But what you're talking about is the inference phase yeah, of these right. large language models that's going to cause a lot less demand once the models are already trained. So that's companies right. like yours are not rushing out to go buy H100s no. or the H200s, right? You're not double ordering them the way the hyperscalers have had to do. Because if they don't have those models on their clouds, they're going to lose business for customers like yours. Isn't that like an important distinction here? It is. And I think Trevor's been bang on with this, which is at the NVIDIA hard tech level, it's cloud 2.0. So it's all those cloud providers, they all need compute and they need to be able to get the order in and have the latest tech. But there's not everyone. Not everyone needs to, like we're not going to go and build our own cloud at least anytime soon. And so it's cloud 2.0. It's Google, it's Microsoft, Mm -hmm. it's Amazon, Snowflake, those kind of guys, right? And so that's that's where the demand is. And if you look at what a lot of them are saying is they're trying to work around the short supply of what NVIDIA has. And so they may be internally developing their own or finding other routes. NVIDIA, Great company, probably the wrong price for me. Looks like Cisco in 2000, if you ask me. You spent time in the United Kingdom, yes? I live, yeah, I was born there. Yeah, I yeah, lived there. You. Yeah. I, I know this. <laughs> Where are you from in the United Kingdom? It's a place called High Wickham, sure. west of London. Big, so who's your football team? Chelsea. 
Of course they are. <laughs> you know, but it's interesting. I see Chelsea is probably midway through in the Premier League. I think they're like number 11 or they so. They're mid-table, unfortunately. But what's interesting is, and it all comes full circle, Dan, Nathan, that sitting atop the Premier League standings, where are the Beatles from? Uh, Liverpool. Yes, they are. <laughs> yes, they are. And as I sit here, Liverpool, having played 26 games, Dan, stands atop the standings. And I don't know if there's a club from your town. Obviously, you mentioned you're a Chelsea fan. That's pretty posh. I get it. But Man City, Arsenal, and, you know, your team is middle of the road there, Stu, middle of the road. It is. We we lost our main backer, Roman Abramovich. So oh, in, in wow. the, when Roman went down, that was it. We were a casualty well, of the Russian-Ukraine war. Stop it. You <laughs> no, have it, a couple. Of, you have a handful of Americans, the guys from Clear Lake. Todd, you have Todd Bowley. This is going to be – Chelsea is going to be a powerhouse in the not-so-distant okay, future, atop of the EPL, Guy Adami. We, um, we flaked at the Caribou Cup against Liverpool only a week or two ago. Yeah, it's like one of these cups that we did. So we got to the final, and then we got beaten fairly hard. We lost. We lost. We lost. We lost. But you know what? In an embarrassing way. We are all winners for having you have join us here on there the On The are. Tape podcast. So once again, Stuart comes on with us every quarter. That means every how many months? He comes on actually more than that guy because he drops in. He's actually our landlord here. Oh. So he's allowed to come on whenever he wants. But just one, just to thread the needle on this oh, stuff. Right away. Like a lot of things that you just opined on, you're doing it. We're just market participants, market pundits. You're actually in the trenches, whether it be on the U.S. consumer front on the sort of technology that you need to serve yeah. them, on the sort of landscape that it takes to build companies and that sort of thing. So yeah. we're lucky to have you here, man. We appreciate it. So you're welcome back whenever you want, actually. Thank you. I love being this here. This office. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Thanks, too. Thank you. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.